You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode number 25. Today we're talking with Heiner Fruhauf about Goo Syndrome. This is part two. Hey everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today our guest is Dr. Heiner Fruhauf again. Hi Heiner. Hello, good to be back. Great, so now we're continuing on with part two of the episode about Goo Syndrome. Dr. Heiner Fruhauf is the founding professor of the School of Classical Chinese Medicine at the National College of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. He has lectured on three continents over 30 years and authored a broad variety of articles and textbooks on Chinese medicine. His interest in preserving some of the traditional features of oriental medicine led him to develop a database dedicated to the archiving of classical knowledge where a selection of his publications can be accessed at classicalchinesemedicine.org. Out of concern over the rapidly declining quality of medicinals from mainland China, he has founded the company Classical Pearls, specialising in the import of wildcrafted and sustainably sourced Chinese herbs. You can find the website at classicalpearls.org. He also has an active clinical practice in the Columbia River Gorge area, specialising in the treatment and prevention of chronic, difficult and recalcitrant diseases with Chinese herbs. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. So welcome back to the show, Heiner. It's great to have you back with us. Thank you. So we're going to pick up where we left off in episode 24 and discuss in a little bit more depth the way that goo syndrome appears to explode the regular diagnostic patterns of Chinese medicine. How how would you describe the characteristics and stages of a typical anti-goo treatment, Heiner? As we discussed already last time, a little bit at least, is that the the goo syndrome is basically a miscellaneous disease that does not fit into any of the regular patterns uh, of diagnosis, whether it's liver indeficiencies, spleen sheet deficiency, etc., but that there is multiple pathological parameters such as wind and damp and deficiency and excess, uh, quite contradictory patterns are layered upon another and make things rather complex. And that's why one of the many goo classics that exist that have been not incorporated, unfortunately, in the existing TCM school literature is that, uh, to sort of roughly quote that, uh, it says, it looks like diarrhea, but if I treat it like dampness or a regular spleen sheet deficiency, then it doesn't work. It looks like constipation if I treat it like Yangming disease. It doesn't work. So there needs to be a new diagnosis, which would be simply Goo syndrome, and uh, it has its own uh, herbal logic and um, progression uh, of the disease that goes with that. Um, 
as I've uh, laid out in several written interviews, because it's kind of hard to uh, keep track of that, um, particularly since the ancient classics, and I said there's lots of chapters that go through the last 2,000 years of written history that have entries that are called goo syndrome or chronic parasite syndrome or differently translated a possession syndrome, um, is that their, their didactic reasoning is not uh, necessarily so easy to follow from the perspective of the modern observer. So what I've done is to break it up from our herbal perspective to understand what is happening in a lot of these formulas. And by in formulas that we can use, because they're of course used lots of what I call herbal chemotherapy, like arsenic and strychnine and those kinds of rather dangerous uh, therapies to purge out dangerous parasites that then almost kill you or make you sick in the process. Uh, I've identified, particularly during the Qing Dynasty, quite a few formulas, among them so-called jiajian, suhetang, and suhetang, uh, basically lead herbs being uh, mint and perilla leaf, uh, and written about those, and then also developed uh, the, the patent remedies, so lightning pearls and thunder pearls from that. But from our regular herbal perspective, this rather interesting is this combination of herbs that are, from a conventional perspective that we learn in school, are surface releasing, uh, like chai hu, like jing hua, like lian xiao, like gao ben, um, like bai zhi, uh, etc., that we would expect to be prescribing in a common cold for just a very short period of time. And this category is absolutely essential because it um, all of these patients, they feel tired and exhausted, like usually diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, etc., with body pains. And so they feel chronically as if they have the common cold. But most often they're being peppered with some kind of tonic, which then tends to tonify the parasite actually and lock the parasite in the house and make matters worse. So you need to prescribe these diaphoretic herbs, which here in the Gu syndrome lingo are described in the Gu classics as fa biao sha she, which means um, open up the surface with snake-killing herbs. So it's a particular way to go after chronic inflammatory conditions in both the nervous system as well as in the um, digestive system that regular antiparasitic herbs or antitoxin herbs or heat-clearing herbs cannot uh, make inroads with. Uh, so for people uh, with wind symptoms, even if they're not just acute, we still need to use wind herbs to treat that. But, as we know, uh, diaphoretic herbs, they fritter the chi away, and therefore we have to anchor, since we are needing to separate in another Gu classic quote, 
separate the oil that has seeped into the flour, meaning the school condition is often described as oil seeping into flour, meaning it's not so easy to just, oh, I give you a week of antibiotic-like heat-clearing herbs and you'll be good as new, but it is systemically ingrained in your system and will take a long time to get that out of your system. So by definition, we need to prescribe herbs over long periods of time. Uh, for months, uh, very often years, with uh, with with aromatic herbs and, and half excess, half tonic herbs that both build up this person's immune system and at the same time are anti-parasitic and drive out the parasites. And uh, just using diaphoretic chi frittering away herbs is of course not sustainable over long periods of time since these people are already very deficient to begin with. So you can't use tonics, you can't just use acute herbs. So you these formulas tend to exhibit the what looks from a modern perspective, a regular standardized TCM herbalism perspective, rather ugly and unconventional, that you use uh, for instance Jinyuhua Lianxiao Baichi or Baichi combinations like this and then combine it with chi tonic herbs like raw gansal which is specified for toxicity rather than the baked uh, the honey baked licorice uh, and have to use the sheng gansal for this type of condition or even the bang qi is permitted i personally am not such a fan of bang qi since it sometimes tends to lock the thief in the house as uh, some of the classics say, and uh, but definitely better than Lenshen, which is an absolute taboo herb for Gu syndrome, since that will only encourage the parasites to grow more, and is often used as an indication that somebody has Gu syndrome that they get worse, even though they have obvious symptoms of qi deficiency. Ginseng will make matters worse rather than better. And then the third category would be herbs like uh, that are blood tonic, since this is really a disease that's deep in the blood. So Dangui, Chuanqiong, Baishao uh, are herbs that are used, and there's a lot of anxiety also. So they're yin tonic herbs that have a calming effect like Huangjing, Baihe, Heshouwu are often used. And note that all of these herbs are considered from a group perspective anti that that they treat the symptoms that come along with Gu syndrome, including the not just the physical symptoms but the the emotional, mental, emotional uh, aggravation and anxiety and depression and mania and insomnia that comes with it very often. Um, but that these herbs are, while they are tonic, they do not encourage generally the parasites to grow. So it's a very specific category of qi tonics, blood tonics, and yin tonics. And then of course we have what we would understand better from a modern perspective, a category of herbs that is directly anti-parasite, like qinghao, which is of course featured prominently recently because it was used uh, so powerfully uh, to produce this extract that's now used all over around the world to combat malaria, which was uh, one of the worst parasites, a spirochete, of course, and in the West, probably Lyme disease, 
a more uh, common spiketal infection that we face, especially in the United States and in Europe. I don't know about Australia. So, Qinghao, Huzhang, Guangzhou, Weijianyu are but a few herbs in this category that are specifically classified as anti-gu or anti-parasite that tend to be more in the resolved toxin category from a modern TCM herbalism perspective. And then last but not least, there are some aromatic herbs like clove and uh, dingxiang or mushang, like herbs that have a xiang in their name or suhe xiang that are supposed to fumigate the system, resolve pain in the process and used in rather small amounts to you know, almost like lighting incense in the system to drive out the negative energy. And then last but not least, uh, small amounts of blood movers, uh, like Sanan Erju especially in Yujin, uh, the, in the curcuma um, family, that we know uh, as being anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer herbs in the regular materia medica, but that from this perspective is, from a modern perspective, here could be viewed as that the ancient Chinese already knew that lots of parasites secrete a biofilm around them and that you can't just use antibiotic herbs from our perspective, heat clearing and antitoxin herbs to go after them, but then you need to use aromatic and anti-stagnation herbs, blood movers, qi movers, ideally aromatic ones that bust open that biofilm so that these other herbs can then have an opening to attack the pathogen. So I would say these are the five or six categories I found in a lot of the Gu formulas, including Jiajian Suhetang, that the lightning and the thunder pearls are based upon, um, that are used very often now, um, that are highly, is a highly unusual design from a classical and even more modern formula design perspective. So that is my answer for this, uh, the, the, the overall approach. And I would say in terms of the stages, there is at the beginning more of a focus on the acute herbs, meaning at the very beginning the wind herbs must be included and have maybe a, a larger component that there's three of those herbs instead of just two or one. And then later, they over time, they will slowly fade into the background as the pathogenic load is becoming less and less, but then the battery uh, uh, deficiency, so to speak, is more in the foreground. And then you, then it's more and more about tonification of the system. And at that stage, I will not only use uh, qi and blood and yin tonics, but I will use yang tonics, such as aconite especially, which I find in alignment with the so-called Horshan Pai, or Fire Spirit School of Sichuan Herbalism that I've written a lot about uh, and that I use a lot uh, of their principles in my own herbal practice uh, is then very important to uh, recharge the kidney yang and the spleen yang uh, so that the system will be 
able to defend itself against renewed infection, number one, since a lot of people, especially on the American East Coast, live in areas where that is rather likely. And then second, uh, I'm talking about Lyme disease here, and um, then secondly, of course, it's very possible that you didn't get the very last bit of pathogens, which is not the most important thing from a Chinese or holistic medicine in general perspective, but uh, it is important that your immune system is up to snuff, so to speak, that it can, is able and, uh, to defend itself. And so as long as we bring the immune system up to a certain uh, degree, then whether there are any, uh, whether there's any yeast or protozoan organisms or spirochetes or viruses left in the system, it's not that terribly important anymore because the body is technically able to defend itself. So that is sort of the, the outline. And if you like me, I can go into greater specifics here, particularly when it comes to different stages and how long they typically last. Yeah, that's such a great wealth of information. I'm, I'm sitting here really excited and thinking about ways that I can change up some of the herbal formulas that I'm prescribing for my patients. You mentioned six different categories of herbs and uh, you mentioned that the wind herbs often feature more so at the start of a treatment program with a patient. Do you, each time you're creating a herbal formula for a patient, are you... Are you putting at least one of each of those six categories of herbs each time? Yeah, typically I recommend, uh, you know, because it's a more complex approach in general, I recommend to my own students as herbal beginners to stay somewhere in the um, 9 to 12 herb range when prescribing a formula or even less just so that it doesn't, you know, because the herbal beginner very often has the tendency to say, oh, I want to use something like Xiao Chai Butan, but then I also want to use these three herbs for headaches. And since I can't differentiate between these single ones that, you know, whether it's Gaobin or Chuanqiong or Gugun or Baiju, I'm going to throw all three or four of them in there. <laughs> Just for insurance. <laughs> low back pain and foot aches, so I'm throwing everything there, Xu Duan and Du Zhong and Niu Xi, etc. I'm throwing all of those and Sanji Shan for good measure also in there. <laughs> and then before you know it, you end up with 15 or 20 herbs that then pull the formula into different directions. And while you might have been shooting into the right direction, you sort of smother the approach with too much, you know, you give too much information to the body you playing Mozart and Beethoven that by themselves are all beautiful, but you play them at the same time, it becomes a cacophony. And uh, that's the same with the, with the unclear herbal approach. So the beauty of this is that we have a complex herbal approach that usually is about, I would say, 12 to 15 herbs. And uh, every category has about one to three herbs in it and so um, I usually with this kind of a remedy am up there at 15 
uh, 15 herbs for sure. And then you start, uh, because you want to be a step ahead of the parasite, because they will, it's not like you're hitting a toxin like lead or mercury that is dumb and just waiting there to be discharged. If you open up the amongtories from a, a naturopathic perspective, use their language here, um, then this will come out in the urine rather quickly without defending themselves. Uh, whereas the parasites are living organisms and they will devise um, counter strategies to, just like with antibiotics, they will get used to your herbs. And so you you want to use the same approach, but these, but keep them uh, off balance here by constantly rotating uh, certain herbs. So you every category has maybe five or six herbs in it, maybe. Uh, I've made in my writing sort of a goo uh, materia medica based on these ancient texts with five or six or even more herbs in each category. And then you would typically use two or three in each category, and then you would change at least one every six weeks or so. That would be uh, recommendable just so that um, you can stay a step ahead of the parasite and its, uh, and its adjustment strategies. What, what period of time, because six weeks, you did mention last time every sort of four to six weeks, is there a period of time that you would consider too short to change, to change the herbs? Yeah, this is an excellent question because, of course, many of us, we see our clients every week or every two weeks and then would like to change them. And, of course, you can. Um, the... the, the but if, as long as things are going well, I would say you can go up to six weeks, No, in some cases even longer, no problem there. Some of it is also a dosage question. The higher the dose, the earlier you need to change uh, the herbs and the formula, the earlier you will sort of burn out on that particular formula. Uh, same with food, you know, if you would eat a giant amount of a pesto, even if it's your favorite food, or spaghetti bolognese, or something like that, it, you just don't want to see it for a long time. Whereas if you eat a smaller amount every single day, you can you can <laughs> take it for several weeks before you start getting tired of it. The herbs are no, no different there. And um, the, bigger, the, the, question, the problem is, however, that patients will typically, because of the defense mechanism of the pathogen, go into something that we briefly touched upon last time, which is the so-called Herxheimer response, meaning that when a pathogen is being attacked in our body with nasty, often bitter and pungent and nasty tasting herbs, then they will try to manipulate the host, which is the patient, into stopping what they are doing and will inject literally certain endocrine toxins into their system that will make them feel miserable and they then will get a headache or get a rash or get symptoms they hadn't had in a while and now all of a sudden you get that phone call and they say, 
how come you know I'm getting worse now rather than better? And there are two possibilities that you need to weigh. And one of them is that indeed you used a different, um, uh, you should have used a different remedy, or that they are hypersensitive and they're indeed allergic to one of your herbs. But most often than not, we're dealing with a Herxheimer response, which means you absolutely, you, this is confirming your diagnosis of Pooh syndrome. If you look at a remedy, that is, these remedies are very much using principles from the fever school, which means overall the flavor is rather bland. But uh, while there are some pungent herbs, overall the, the flavors balance each other out. It's not like you use Coptis and Nevodia in these formulas. You use kind of herbs that are easy on the digestive system, like Jin Hua, it's heat clearing but it has a sweet flavor also, and therefore you can, it's not harmful like coctus would be long-term use on your spleen and your stomach, which you do need to consider. And then you have, you know, along with these dispersing type of herbs, you have deeply nourishing and anchoring herbs like Dangui and Chuanxiong and uh, Gansao and uh, Wangjing and Baihe, etc that are also of fairly food grade. And so if the healthy person, in other words, would take this so-called goo formula, it would not uh, prompt them to immediately blow out and call you and say, there is a, these herbs are terrible. Uh, it is, if somebody has a very strong response, it wouldn't be because of an allergic, most likely, allergic reaction to one of these herbs, it would be more that the herb, the pathogens in your body feel for the first time different from any herbs that this patient has taken before, they feel targeted and camouflage and attacked directly because goo syndrome means black magic syndrome, means nature has put a hex on you and you don't even know what's going on because these things are operating in the dark to the degree that you take a Western medicine parasite test and they all come back negative. And so now you have recognized what the issue is and they feel attacked and as a result of it they fight back and inject toxins into your bloodstream and into your lymphatic stream and uh, you know irritate your nervous system the worst case scenario and so people will feel uh, immediately out of sorts. And it takes in the beginning that is disconcerting uh, for people who uh, prescribe these herbs. And um, that is why I tend to, in my writing about Lyme disease, about Goo syndrome, and here again, uh, orally want to emphasize to not be scared about this. It, if anything, it means you're on the right track and just tell the patient to keep going rather than immediately changing the remedy. But also pointed out in the ancient Gu classics, while they say, depending on the severity of the situation, because Gu syndrome can cover something from as benign as you know severe fungus or candida overgrowth to a tapeworm and, and liver flukes and and on one hand, but it can also, or it's these kind of um, uh, late, 
heightened uh, nervous system inflammation, like uh, low-grade encephalitis, low-grade malaria, low-grade um, Babesia, Bartonella, Lyme disease, which is called Borrelia, and other uh, infections of this sort. Um, the, there are also rather life-threatening diseases in ancient China that have been classified as Gu syndrome, uh, which is this hollowing you out until you die syndrome, basically, uh, like schistosomiasis, which would kill you within three months. And so the antidote was using 15 herbs, and a lot of them at 30 grams per day, crude herb decoction. So you end up with this giant bag of 350 grams uh, of herbs per day, which is enormous, almost a pound there. And uh, But they say you need to sneak up on the pathogen because the pathogens in your body are like a frog. And if you throw a frog into, you know, surprise the frog by throwing him into boiling water instead of being boiled to death immediately, he'll jump out of the pot and you, uh, you, you need to start over again. So better to put the, the frog into lukewarm water and very slowly sneak up on him and uh, then uh, lull him to sleep and then boil him in his sleep slowly. And so that means start with a lower dose and then slowly, slowly increase the dose until you have the higher dose. I usually don't use that high uh, doses, particularly with sensitive patients. I usually prescribe uh, the equivalent of 60 to 90 grams of crude herbs per day, usually in granule form. For instance, like 6 grams of granules two times a day, 5 grams of granules three times a day, six grams of granules three times a day, something in that neighborhood. But I very often start, I'm talking here about five to one granular extracts. But uh, for starters, or if somebody calls me like that, I, rather than saying, oh my God, we need to change your herbs immediately, I say, this is a good sign actually. Um, start with two grams uh, two times a day and then after three days or five days, work your way up to two grams three times a day. And then after another five days, go up to three grams three times a day, etc. until I'm at the full dose, whatever that might be. Often when we see these patients, they've already done, you know, sometimes a lot of different parasite cleanses that they've found from other practitioners or the internet. Um, and so they come in a state where they've already quite weakened. Would you consider that the beginning stages of treatment still? Yes, this is the brilliant uh, insight of this approach that from the very get-go, uh, even with the most excess-oriented perspective, which is including three of these wind herbs in high amounts, like at 15 grams or so, um, and you know, two or three anti-parasitic herbs, uh, also in higher amounts, like uh, 12 to 15 grams or so, that the bulk of the formula, at least half of it, is considering deficiency of the patient. The modern parasitology treatment in Chinese medicine and Western herbalism even more so, 
but also in Chinese medicine, has oriented itself almost exclusively at the Western model, which is uh, using antibiotics like metronidosol or flagyl or other filtricide or those kinds of anti uh, anti-helmintic or anti-parasitic or uh, anti-malaria, etc., or antibiotic, uh, in essence, medication that will deplete you. Uh, antibiotic is, after all, after uh, anti-life medication, and so the treatment. Uh, the best example is the Holda Clark approach, which, uh, who of course she is this uh, American uh, doctor who went to Mexico for many years and wrote the books. Uh, uh, the cure for all disease, where she basically said all disease, including cancer, comes from parasites. And while that may even be so, her approach was to basically use very strong herbs like clove and black walnut husk that from a Chinese perspective would be um, completely excess-oriented. And while they would make you feel better for the first three days, Afterwards, if you take them for a long period of time, they would give you a stomach ache. And so that is, and so later, and, and approaches, you know, other Western medicine approaches, I see that when I scan the anti-Lyme literature online, it's all kind of polyconatum, cuspidatum, hujang, qinghao, it's herbs like this, for the most part, that are being singled out as being uh, anti-pathogenic, and then people tend to, uh, just like they make anti-cancer formulas with Chinese herbs, by piling uh, 10 different qingrejietu uh, herbs, uh, herbs that clear heat and resolve toxins, and our deficient spleen and stomach just can't take that. So from the very get-go, these kinds of, the kind of goo formulas uh, provide for that. But you're absolutely correct that there are some people that are even more deficient, meaning they're already young deficient. They're not just qi and blood and yin deficient, but they're right away completely young deficient, and the qi is not anchored in the kidney as a result of it. So you need to use the descending effect of futsu, which is one of the main herbs, not just to warm the yang and dry damp, but to descend flaring yang, uh, unbeknownst to many modern herbalists. Uh, it's not just dihuang on the yin side that does that, uh, but futsu on the yang side that is capable of doing that. Uh, like in the context of Shenyang, then submerged the yang palate, also a, a remedy from the 1900s or the 1800s uh, that I've written about. Uh, that is very useful here, particularly the combination of Futsu uh, and Sharen or Baido Ko that uh, will make the Yang Qi go down. So I, while I more often reserve the inclusion of Futsu very often in the context of this Qian Yang Dan, um, for this recharging the battery more strongly uh, level, uh, of treatment, uh, I, I use that usually later, like half a year into treatment or a year and a half into treatment. Um, for some patients, I would say uh, it is appropriate to use that right away 
particularly if they have very uh, strong uh, deficiency symptoms, very deep uh, pulses, cold hands and feet, and they have uh, unanchored young symptoms, even though they call them deficient, they tend to be anxious, they tend to have insomnia, they tend to be super reactive to herbs, and I recommend to use these uh, three herbs uh, in conjunction right away, Futsu, Baidoko or Shagan, one of those, in conjunction with Futsu and Gansal, that would be, be, be sort of the heart of that Shenyang Dan, basically. Taojiang or some other form of ginger would also then belong to that chain of that. With formulas like Wumei Wan, for example, if we're going and looking at the Shanghan Lun, what, how would you ever use that as, as an inspirational type of formula, perhaps down the track? Like it does contain Renshen, and you were saying before that you don't ever really use Renshen. Do you ever use Renshen for these patients? Like if you're 12 or 18 months down the track, would that be a formula that you would consider as a, as a base formula to modify? No. First of all, even though I have probably one of the biggest um, private collections of single herbs, Chinese herbs in the Pacific Northwest here in in the United States, I don't even, Zhenshen in general, Gu syndrome or not, is not even part of my collection of my clinic here because of the um, pesticide and, and uh, you know, such, such an herb that's been in great demand ever since the 1970s when lots of overseas Chinese and um, uh, in the West uh, people started using that. So it's instead of being sourced in the, in, in the wild or responsibly grown and it grows in pots with fertilizers and as a result of it I never um, use that herb uh, but I have a number of uh, replacements for that uh, most notably Wujia um, Shen or Tsuwujia Siberian Ginseng which I find for most modern people Gu syndrome or not in general is uh, most suitable because it fights dampness and it doesn't tonify yeast or other parasites uh, and it also is stronger than ginseng in combating autoimmune complications so that is my favorite and for Gu syndrome in particular particularly for protozoan parasites and if i choose to use ume one which would be mostly for cases of um, worms, actual worms or flukes, uh, liver flukes, sheep flukes, that sort of thing, that can be incredibly stubborn and, and also hard to diagnose in a stool test. Um, I would use bait shashen, which I find particularly suitable uh, and uh, for the for use in Gu syndrome, and um, is also listed as one of the yin tonic verbs in the. Materia Medica of ancient times. Um, so, um, coming back to Wumei Wan, there, that is pretty much what we have for chronic parasites or parasites in general. 
from a modern TCM herbal perspective uh, for what is in essence goose syndrome. People use either sort of a, the same modern herb Holder Clark or TCM anti-cancer approach by just identifying herbs like Qinghao that are anti-parasitic and then throwing a whole bunch of those at the patient, which would be rather abrasive on their stomach and not sustainable, uh, despite perhaps initial uh, improvement. And then secondly, for the more classically oriented folks, like uh, probably uh, you guys and also me at the beginning of my career, was was indeed Wumeiwan. Anything parasitic you would think Wumeiwan. But Wumeiwan is specific for two different things. Number one, roundworms uh, and perhaps flukes. So if there is indeed worm affliction and there's evidence of that, which is apart from seeing worms in the stool or detecting worm eggs in the stool test, one of with roundworms, one of the uh, bizarre symptoms that uh, I experienced that unfortunately myself uh, when I first went to China uh, more than 30 years ago, uh, I, without knowing, had roundworms uh, that I got right away being in China in 1982. And I would get, once a month when I ate specific things, uh, one of the things that would set it off was raw bell peppers. And that somehow made the worms go into the gall duct and then you get incredible spasms and abdominal pain for 24 hours. And uh, back in the West, no doctor could diagnose that because it's not a common thing that they see. Every village doctor in China would immediately know what that is and give you a Wumeiwan, actually. So Wumeiwan works like a miracle for this kind of uh, thing, particularly in easing the pain immediately in descending these worms that have like they're like leeches and suck to the wall of your small intestine. And there's something in the Wumeiwan, perhaps the xanthoxylum and the sourness of the wume that actually paralyzes the worm and lets them go off the wall so that they get swept into the large intestine where they then can be expelled with more regular purgative materials like dahuang or rhubarb for instance. Um, so it's good for that but worm affliction is not necessarily gu syndrome. Remember that the character, ancient character for gu is three worms in a vessel. And so it's basically a super infection of multiple, not only strains of parasites, but types of parasites. Like you might have systemic yeast and systemic, like candida and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, mucor or something like this. And then you have um, uh, chronic viruses like herpes perhaps. And then you, uh, or even AIDS, I would say, is a type of goose syndrome, actually. You know, something that you can not see from the outside, but it's hollowing you out from the inside until you eventually die from that. And uh, then number three, uh, these protozoan parasites or spirochetal parasites that afflict the nervous system, and of course, also worms. But for the worms alone, the Wumeiwan would be great. And then for certain, <coughs> excuse me, for certain afflictions of the nervous system that are 
like malaria, for instance, that carry with them a certain nerve pain and neurosis quality that symptom-wise registers as dream. So like cold below and hot above. Uh, for those kinds of disorders, uh, Jui, uh, the Juyin, representative Juyin remedy, because that's what it is, along with Dangwisen Yitang and Uju Yitang, Ume Wan is, after all, the representative remedy of the Juyin chapter in the in the Shanghai Wen. So there, there is sort of Shanghai Zabinu, to use the uh, complete name here, uh, of the herbal classic. The so typically not Wumeiwan, but it does occur, particularly now that my cl clinic is basically 50% goose syndrome, uh, chronic possession syndrome caused by chronic parasitic infection, where other remedies don't wor work. So I need more than just Jiajian Suhatang or under lightning pearls in my toolbox. So then there are other ones, and so I recently, uh, based on 10 years of experience using that, devised something called um, Serpent Pearls, which makes that um, reference to the worm-based uh, uh, usage here of that remedy that's Wumeiwan-based. And, and uh, so I will use Wumeiwan for some of these patients, but I would say that is about 15%, if that many, of, of the typical GU patient. Uh, so the answer is yes, I will use it, but it is not, we can't under any circumstance have this knee-jerk reaction where we suspect parasites, oh, you've lived in Africa since then, your health has never been the same, uh, let's use Wome one, might do some good, but in 85% of cases is not the first thing I would think about um, for goose syndrome. Mm. Earlier you mentioned chelating heavy metals and I'm aware that there is often quite a combination um, especially with candida and metals especially if someone's getting those skin rashes. Do you also conjunctively at the same time um, work on the heavy metal load in patients? I do, but I want, after working on this and for 30 years now and being also connected to the German homeopathy community since I um, obviously uh, with this name and accent uh, originally from, from Germany and my par uh, father and grandfather were homeopaths in the uh, natural MD tradition that still exists over there. Um, so, and there they pay a lot of at attention to uh, chelating out heavy metals with homeopathic means. Also, these new uh, homeopathy that's known as the Wunda therapy. Uh, they um, uh, also um, think that that's a good idea. However, from an herbalist perspective, I can say that a lot of these people, they come to me and they either already had that treatment without any result, uh, meaning somebody diagnosed them as all of your symptoms are due to heavy metal 
issues and if you only get that out and you only get the mercury out and you, you only get chelated uh, then all of your symptoms will disappear and then in most of these people that doesn't happen um, so I what heavy metals do is that they are one of the worst poisons for the nervous system and uh, these people if, if somebody has an inflamed nervous system, basically your brain is inflamed, then of course any additional insult to the nervous system will be injurious and painful. But if you address only the metals without addressing what in most patients is the, the greater source cause, which is the inflammation in the nervous system, you will have a little result. So what I usually do is I give them an herbal formula to address the inflammation in the nervous system, which includes tonics that balance their own immune system. But secondarily, either right away or later, I do address the metals, mostly with homeopathic means rather than with Western-style harsh chelation methods, which again can be sort of uh, injurious to the patient from a Chinese medicine, you know, qi building perspective. So uh, I recognize metals as an issue in modern times, but want to caution that that is most patients, at least the ones that come to me, is secondary insult to the nervous system. The primary insult comes from chronic nervous system inflammation. You mentioned before that that the different stages of of treatment and recovery with patients has you know predictable timeframes and and things that you're looking out for. Are they things that you're looking for in in terms of changes with pulse and tongue and symptoms, or how is there another way that you're identifying the different stages that patients progress through in their recovery? Excellent question. I usually tell people that um, first of all, they need to reserve about three to five years for this treatment to remove the oil from the flower, uh, meaning to to remove this entity that's become one with the system, and that is can only be done slow slowly. And while these people tend to be very impatient because they already have a long road behind them, um, there is no, and we all have sympathy for that and we want to push that magic button that uh, makes them better in a week or two or a month or two, but that is not possible according to the Chinese uh, classics that have researched this for the syndrome literally for thousands of years. However, what I tell them there is hope, namely rather than you getting worse and worse, you will in that process get better and better over time. And sometimes that getting better is so gradual that the patient, not just the parasite doesn't notice that you're sneaking up on it, but the patient themselves will not notice it. I can remember once this patient had chronic um, amoeba infection in their liver that made them so invalid over time that they um, 
had to lay on the couch, couldn't work at all. And then they gradually got better, but about one year into the treatment or a year and a half into the treatment, they had, and this is a typical scenario, they said, before we get going today, at the beginning of the appointment, uh, she said, I need to have a talk. You know, I put a lot of time and effort into this, and I'm not really, you know, getting better. And um, I said, Let, wait a minute, before we go any farther, let's go to the beginning of the chart. And by the time that she came to see me, she was not working at all, was laying on the couch, could barely go out shopping, and was really in dire straits. Whereas now she was in a position where she was tired because of the general tiredness of the modern urban industrialized city dweller because she was working for the weekends, she was working 10 hours a day as a, as a nurse and caretaker of sick people. So it was a completely different scenario, but it had, was so gradual that she had forgotten about that. And of course, you just mentioned that. Then the person said, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot all about it. That's, that's right. Because, you know, after a while, people want all of their issues fixed, including their personal life, which herbs, of course, cannot do for you. So at a certain point, lifestyle and exercise and nutrition, all of these things, they need to be concurrent along with the herbs to, to make a lasting impact on the, on the patient there. So um, sometimes also something happens, like I remember this case where somebody who was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, degenerative nervous system disease, which in my book and that of many of my colleagues, including Western progressive Western medicine doctors specializing in diseases of the nervous system, including Dr. Cleanheart in Seattle. I believe that MS and other things like Parkinson's and even Alzheimer's can be a sequela or often is a sequela of Lyme disease and other spirochetal infections of the nervous system. And so this person diagnosed with MS and I said, you actually, to my reckoning, have Lyme disease or what we diagnose as goo syndrome, in this case, what I've termed brain goo, which is a parasitical infection of the, specifically the nervous system or the brain, which has a degenerative impact on the patient. And so the patient, the, the patient got remarkably better, went back to work, and about a year and a half into that, despite my prediction that we would need to take three to five years, he said, I'm moving farther away to the Oregon coast, and it's now, instead of a half an hour drive to you, I need to drive three and a half hours, and it's also a financial issue for me, and I think I'm all better. I don't need the herbs anymore, and I said, that's not my recommendation, since these goo pathogens tend to go, go into dermacies and be latent, very much like the curse of the pharaoh, where, you know, as has been shown, you know, you open up some mummy that's been buried for 5,000 years, but there is some old yeast spores or viruses or so that are or parasitic organisms in that mummy, maybe even something that killed that mummy that is still in there somehow and is then infecting the person um, digging it out. So these things, they can be incredibly patient and 
be there for years uh, and decades uh, and uh, that I recommend to basically early fumigate the system uh, for a while longer. Uh, just like a Western doctor would say, don't skip the antibiotics after four days when your sore throat feels better, but do the full course, which is a week or, or 10 days. So this is a similar, you want to keep going because you, you, these things are a little bit like the HIV antiretroviral drugs that you, you push the virus or the spirochete or the protozoan organism into powerlessness for a while, but that doesn't mean they can't be dormant there. So I always recommend to, uh, particularly if the disease has been there for years or decades, to go the full length of, doesn't need to be at a high level, but for at least three, if not five years. And so then, sure enough, that patient came back a year later of not being on herbs, being diagnosed with full-blown MS again, and then it took longer, it took like, uh, it took us a, a, another year or so to get him back to the place where he was before, and now of course he does a maintenance treatment and uh, doesn't want to uh, go up his herbs uh, anytime soon, so that is the consideration here. Do you work with people on Skype who uh, are far away from you like that? I don't because I have like four different jobs by basically being a full-time professor at the, the national, you mentioned College of Natural Medicine that's as of last week actually got me named to nation, uh, National University of uh, Natural Medicine and um, have my private clinic here mostly syndrome and then operating the herb business and the uh, continuing education website there, classical uh, Chinese medicine.org. So I usually don't work with people on the telephone and over Skype, but I have uh, former students who have worked with me and trained with me for many years who are now working at my clinic that will um, do that yeah, as long as it is illegal in the country and the state uh, that, uh, where the patient is located to mm. do long-distance uh, consultations. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, people are starting to travel a lot more and relocate in this global village we have now. And um, I have another question for you just about herbs and using do you use any of the medicinal mushrooms and the reason I ask is because I personally am a little cautious about them um, partially because I'm allergic to them but also because I look at them as a fungus and a yeast and that in many cases I think that's not going to be a good idea for someone's system. I couldn't agree more um, with the caveat that I believe that in a lot of instances, the Lingzhu, the Ganoderma mushroom, is valuable and they use it a lot for cancer and a lot for people with anxiety and insomnia. But that I definitely advise against a knee-jerk response of including mushrooms in just about anything when qi tonic uh, tonification is 
required from from a regular TCM diagnostic perspective. Um, I think um, the mushrooms absorb a lot of um, heavy metals easily, and they belong to the water element that will have a tendency to do that. Like uh, uh, when I lived in Germany, I know that you weren't allowed to uh, strictly advised by the government uh, to not collect and consume any wildcrafted mushrooms for years after that. So that was like, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles away from Chernobyl. So mushrooms are extremely sensitive to, and, and uh, China is of course the most heavy metal polluted country on the planet with the acid rain from coal-fired power plants that they have there. A lot of their acid rain uh, makes it all the way over here to the American West Coast. Unfortunately, like here in Oregon, we have much higher Alzheimer's incidence than in other states because uh, five tons of mercury gets in introduced into the soil here from Chinese coal-powered power plants. So in China, even worse, and the mushrooms will absorb that. Um, so. Um, with the exception of a properly chelated Ganoderma mushroom for people with anxiety symptoms and perhaps cancer, I particularly advise against using a lot of these, like Dongchong Xiaocao is most often fake and contaminated and, and uh, too expensive to begin with, not appropriate for a lot of patients. We use Salinja instead if you really want to use a Chitonic mushroom for people like this, and then um, uh, these other mushrooms like Coriolis and a lot of those other ones that are fashionable in the West and put into these multi-mushroom supplements or so, as somebody who applies also this uh, bioresonance testing or electrodermal screening testing on people of all the supplements I've come across my desk there, um, that kind of kinesiology testing, I find that those mushrooms don't usually test positive for patients and I, I don't usually, uh, in alignment with what you just said there, don't recommend that as, okay, just go ahead and take the mushroom and if in doubt they won't do any harm, it can only be good, it's a superfood. Uh, yeah, it, it, you're right, they are a mushroom and as such they related to funguses and there's virtually nobody out there who doesn't have some form of fungal overgrowth and, uh, and same with kombucha, you know, that's another fungus so you don't want to uh, just uh, recommend that for everybody lightheartedly since people can react to those. Mm. I can often tell the change in personality of people I know who go on big kombucha binging um, which brings me to my last question. I don't know if Claire has any more. more. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about the, the difficulties that the patient will encounter during such a long process of recovery. And there's so much great research coming out about how these various parasites can influence our thoughts and our emotions. And I see that the behaviours of sabotage really come up and how do you how do you deal with those and that's an excellent point um my so uh 
cycle is this pattern, meaning the mental emotional pattern, the high maintenance pattern, the anxiety pattern, the need to control everything in the treatment pattern, paired with a despair that I can never get better, and here it comes again, I knew it. Uh, those kinds of patterns, they is so typical that my front desk staff or those among them that are not really technically medically trained uh, by degree in the past are able to immediately tell me, I'm sure this is another Lyme patient because they exhibit that typical anxiety about their health and their uh, need to get better and calling constantly, emailing constantly and then also be super reactive to things. So that is um, part of the diagnosis really and I address that also with patients that uh, I say right from the get-go that we not only in order to diagnose Crohn's syndrome we not only because we can't fully uh, rely on the western stool test because of the hidden nature of these pathogens and the subacute nature of the pathogens but with these lists of symptoms that we discussed last time uh, in the physical and mental emotional realm, one of them that goes with that is what we call the symptoms that go with the so-called, using homeopathy language here, with a syphilitic miasm. Syphilis is, of course, uh, a spirochete-induced uh, venereal disease that is similar though to Lyme disease, which is tick transfer, but uh, some researchers believe that it can also be uh, transferred through uh, intercourse or any other kind of blood uh, avenue. And that the spirochetal miasm is this mental emotional angst that I'm in the dark and I can never see the end of the tunnel. And while I'm still functional and I'm uh, doing my best out there so that in the eyes of other people maybe I appear as intellectual and in control and asking all the right questions, but I'm really not only anxiety riddled and highly reactive to all forms of therapy, but I'm holding the deeply ingrained belief that I can never get better. And I'm going to prove to you as my new therapist, therapist number 12, uh, to use an arbitrary number here, that you will also fail. And I tell the patient right away that uh, not to fall into this pattern because that voice in their head is the voice of the parasite. Uh, it's not them. That's part of the possession syndrome voice here. And uh, it's sort of a deep hopelessness that goes with this miasm and a deep aggravation that is not helpful. I always say the, these kind of parasites, particularly the nervous system parasites, are like the dementors in Harry Potter, that they suck out the, all of the light out of you. And uh, this uh, particular pattern that I've named here, the, the syphilitic miasm, is uh, particularly uh, applies to these brain group patients or these people afflicted with a multiple and chronic uh, inflammation of the nervous system. 
and they, they tend to have this, it's never going to get better, and here it is again, and this also doesn't work. So I tell them that ahead of time so that they feel, that usually right away resonates with them, and they will curb that impulse to immediately pick up the phone and go into this uh, uh, ventilating blaming rant or, or it's not a blaming rant it's basically just a way to share their suffering but it's not helpful to them it's not helpful for us as practitioners because the answer is always the same this is part of your symptom you need to be patient it's going to take a long time we have a plan and you need to perhaps go down with the dose and then slowly increase but um, it will be a roller coaster up and down for a while until you feel when you look six months back you go oh you know the symptom is not there anymore that symptom is there still but it's less etc wonderful answer thank you because yeah. I mean this is the most difficult part for the practitioner in my experience yes and that is why so many practitioners shy away from patients with goose syndrome both uh, naturopaths and other holistic practitioners as well as Chinese medicine practitioners and say, oh no, I just want to specialize on the sports injuries and people with these uh, shoulder pain, etc. Whereas, you know, just from a compassion perspective, I can say there's a huge need for this kind of patient. It's, uh, you, if you specialize in that, you will have uh, immediately a six months waiting list uh, at the very least. And secondly, um, it, 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 yeah, it is a, it's good for the world, it's good for your practice, and it is good for these individual cases that uh, just have these over-the-counter parasite cleanses, either from Western medicine as well as, uh, which would be, of course, prescription, but uh, these, these kind of supplement-based Western herb cleanses and perhaps uh, other existing uh, Chinese medicine uh, anti-worm or so remedies but that are not really sustainable for long periods of time so I think this is a really a new a very old approach but that um, if I did one thing right in my career it's like take that I can't you know is being involved in unearthing sort of as a medical anthropologist first and as a clinician second this forgotten goose syndrome and restoring it to something that is now being used by herbalists all over the world and were they all of a sudden getting traction when nothing seemed to work before it still takes a long time it's still there is a roller coaster but we going upwards and making progress rather than constantly one step forward two step backward backsliding kind of motion mm, thank you thank you so much for doing that work you're very welcome, and thanks for having me on again. Oh, I think Claire has one more question. I do. Do you have time? Yes, I do. Great. My question is, um, well, going back to what you were saying earlier, you mentioned about Alzheimer's disease being quite high in your area. Fee, Fee and I, over the a few weeks ago, were at a conference on mental health, and we had a, a great presenter from America, a neurologist who specialises in Alzheimer's disease and he has you know using a conventional holistic medicine naturopathic approach has 
been able to reverse Alzheimer's in, for many people, in, in fact. But whilst we were there and, and, and now whilst we're speaking to you, it's prompted me to remember some of the things that he was talking about. And I wonder if there are certain types of Alzheimer's patients that would be considered under that goo category because he, he definitely identified one category of patients who have you know chronic chronic infections and it's overlaid with all of these other issues around thyroid and adrenals and digestion and and mineral balance and vitamin levels and you know from a medical point of view a very complex a very complex treatment. Have you have you treated any Alzheimer's patients that present with goo syndrome? Actually, if I may quickly interject, he was saying that with his protocol, this category was the most difficult to treat and responded the least to his protocol. Oh, yeah, he and so too. I think what was missing was the goo uh, insight. Yes, I couldn't agree more. The, the goo syndrome approach offers a tremendous uh, um, uh, new uh, herbal approaches for people with not only uh, acute inflammations of the nervous system, but people who are already in a degenerated state like Alzheimer's. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, specialists like Dr. Klinghardt or so, uh, and I myself do believe that um, Parkinson's and MS are sort of a long-term sequela to long-standing uh, inflammation of the nervous system that has gone unrecognized for a long period of time. And Alzheimer's is also, and I just last week saw an article that when they, because Alzheimer's was, of course, you have this massive phlegm formation or plaque from a Western perspective, this protein forming in your brain that you can see on an MRI, which is part of the Alzheimer's diagnosis these lesions, when you uh, analyze them under an electron mi microscope, you actually see parasites in there. So proving that just like cancer is an attempt of the body or perhaps heart disease with arterial plaque, that everything starts off with a kind of inflammation and then the body attempts to wall it off and then that process tends to go overboard and produces another disease over time. And Alzheimer's seems to be of that sort. The only question is, um, at the moment that the patient is already diagnosed with Alzheimer's, would it be enough to simply uh, prescribe something like lightning pearls or jiajian suhatang uh, and expect a reversal of Alzheimer's? And my answer, based on my own clinical experience, would be no, because what the plaque, or the protein mass in the brain does, it basically is a combination of what we would call phlegm and blood stasis and severe counterflow in the brain that needs to be reversed with blood moving herbs, with blood warming herbs, Julian syndrome, here comes the Dangui Sinitang, uh, is very important that I mentioned earlier. Uh, along with maybe some of these anti-inflammatory herbs. So the remedy I devised here, or the approach I devised here, is basically Julian-based using Dangui Sinitang, or Dangui Sinitang, Wuzhu Yu Shangjiang Tang from the Shanghai Lun, 
a sort of a base formula with extra blood movers like Taurin, Hongfa, or Ginkgo leaf, Yinxingye, which then culminated in the creation of this evergreen pearls, which is basically for chronic degenerative disorders of the brain, including Alzheimer's, which I might combine with something like lightning pearls or blue approach, if I still see that there is uh, also um, an acute inflammation still in the background and not just the degenerative phase. But blood moving and Julian syndrome is, is very important uh, for those kinds of patients. Uh, short, to, to make it short, there's a, a whole module out there somewhere, a whole video lecture at ProD seminars uh, on chronic degeneration of the nervous system and diseases like Alzheimer's like that that lasts four hours, but I tried to pack it into a four-minute answer there for you. Oh, it's, that's really great news that, uh, that our listeners can follow up and hear your wisdom in more depth and more detail. We'll, we'll link some more of those webinars that people can listen to we'll link them in the show notes for our listeners thank you so much for joining us today Heiner and for spending so much time and sharing so much knowledge with us it's it's so wonderful to have such in-depth clinical experience thank you very much and in this age of uh, global uh, communication it is indeed the best thing we all can do for Chinese medicine is outside of our private practices to engage in things that you are doing like a podcast and radio programs there just to get the word out to uh, not just our patients but other people who are suffering so thank you very much for that mm, I think so many people listening if we even though we aim for practitioners we get some patients listening and I just think they're going to feel really understood by these episodes that you've done um, and have lots of light bulbs going on and they'll probably come looking for you. Yeah, uh, either way, it's, uh, yeah, thank you guys for the work you do. And thank you. And if any of our listeners do want to have any discussion about this, please post your comments on our Facebook page, Heavenly Chi. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.